Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be revisiting a topic that we brought up in a recent episode that we did a little bit back. We did the episode, Where is My Mind? Where yes. We talked about the physical sensation of the mind, where it feels like you're thinking from. And one of the topics we touched on peripherally in that episode was the idea of extended cognition. And that's this framework that has emerged in psychology and in thinking about uh, philosophy of mind that maybe cognition, the process of thinking, involves more than just the brain and in a very real sense, not just that there are some external tools that help your brain think, but that your brain is thinking in conjunction with those external tools. And before we dive into it, I just wanted to give a shout out to the fact that uh, this topic was inspired by a good article that I read in The Atlantic called Does a Spider Use Its Web Like You Use Your Smartphone by Joshua Sokol. So feel free to go ahead and, and check that article out. We're going to be talking about some of the same topics today about the the idea of extended cognition and what role it might play in biology and evolution. That's right. We're going to be talking about the spiders, but we're also going to talk about uh, some octopuses. We're going to talk about some mantoids. We're going to talk about Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So uh, there are going to be a few different examples that we touch on. Now, Krang actually has a very interesting publishing history in the philosophy of mind. Does he? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well I mean, like literally Krang or just things that are Krang-esque? Well, Krang is a classic example of the brain in a vat, except, Uh, of course, Mm -hmm. in this case, the vat has legs and big, beefy arms and a little tiny head. Which came first, Daniel Dennett's uh, paper about the the brain in the jar that we (laughs) referenced in the the last episode or uh, or Krang himself, I wonder? I actually do not know when Krang emerged. You Mm. know more about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles than me, I'm sure. I I think he dates back to the comics, but uh, I I have to admit to not being super knowledgeable about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's most 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 of my expertise comes from watching some episodes of the cartoon and, of course, the the, the, the first generation of movies. Oh, and, and the video game, the beat em up video game. I, I pretty much just know the movies and the game. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So let, let's get into the idea of extended cognition. Essentially, this can be phrased as a question. Do mental processes or cognition extend beyond the brain? Yeah. This entails the idea that our, 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 our brains don't simply interact with symbols, uh, you know, forms, stimuli and so forth but that our brains interact with these external things and forces, and from this, our mind emerges. So the mind is like a larger system than just what's generated by the brain. In fact, the mind is, for example, the brain plus its ability to count on the body's fingers. Yeah, like, I don't know if this is a, a perfect metaphor. You can give me feedback on this one. But one way I was I was trying to think of it, it, it may be over, overly elaborate or overly mystical, but a bongo player, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the bongo player playing the bongo. So <laughs> her hands are not the music. The drum is not the music. The music emerges from the interface of these two things. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it. Now, one way in which that's not quite an apt metaphor is mm-hmm. that it doesn't challenge our assumptions in the same way. It's It's sort of natural to think that the music is not in the player's hands. But mm-hmm. that is not always the way we think about cognition. It, it is more natural 
generally for people to think that cognition lives inside the brain. That's where everything happens. Right. I guess the more apt way to think of it would be the bongo player's brain, the bongo player's drum. Uh-huh. And when these things come together, this this musical form emerges. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. As as an introductory uh kind of kind of uh, metaphor here. No, 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 I like yeah, it. Yeah. I, I'm not being I'm not being critical. No, I'm, no, no, but uh, but I I'm definitely stressing that it's it's we're going to get more elaborate than this. Okay, well, if you accept the idea, just for the sake of argument, this idea might not be the best way to think about cognition, but let's accept it for the sake of argument and move forward, that cognition could be something that's not just what happens in the brain, but the combination of what happens in the brain or the central nervous system and things outside of it. What different uh, symbioses of brain and external circumstances could be represented there? Well, there are at least four different variants of extended cognition. And, you know, this depends on which papers you're reading for the most part and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the original thesis statement. But there's embodied cognition, which I believe we've covered on the podcast before. In embodied cognition, cognition is deeply dependent upon the body as an agent of the brain. OK, uh, this could be um, you know, a, a causal role or a or it could have a, a greater role. Uh, a lot of embodiment theory depends on the nature of the mind-body connection, which is something we've discussed here time and time again. You've probably heard me mention the the rider on a horse versus centaur version of mind and body. We'll explain that a little bit. Okay, so with the the, the rider on a horse, this idea is that we have uh, we have our brain and we have our body, mm-hmm. and they're basically two separate things. The brain is just riding in the body, doing mm-hmm. what it needs to do, but it's it's not as interconnected. It's a separate entity that controls the body. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's the kind of, a lot of times we don't even think really closely about it. We may just fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves as a brain. Mm-hmm. And it's especially when it comes to how we feel, how we're interacting with the world around us, we're just thinking of ourselves as this, this, this mind trapped in this brain. But the centaur analogy here is, is, uh, is more in keeping with a lot of the studies that we discuss here. And I think a lot of the, uh, the research has come out in previous decades. This idea that the mind and the body are far more connected. That it's more like a centaur, the, the, the human torso grown into the horse, mm-hmm. where it's a, it's a unified body. For instance, if you were to stab the flank of the centaur, then the, the human portion definitely feels it. Whereas if you, or to stab the horse in the flank, then the rider is only going to feel the, uh, you know, the, the effects of the horse suddenly jumping, leaping, maybe trying to throw him or her from the horse. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you want to go back to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where does which one is Krang? Krang okay. is the rider on the horse, right? <laughs> yes. To to refresh, if you're not familiar with Krang, um, Krang is uh, like an alien brain creature in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's, he's kind of irritable. He's an irritable villain. Yes. Uh, and he just looks like a squishy pink brain with two little tentacles. Mm-hmm. And left to his own, he just kind of like crawls and slugs about. But he's he's frequently seen in two different devices. One, and this is more of a, what you see in the cartoon, a full android body. Arms, legs, humanoid. It seems to have skin. It has a head and a <laughs> face. And it, it, it enables him to like fight Ninja Turtles and mm. push things over and move around our world like a physical humanoid. If you've actually never seen this, the guy is shirtless, wearing like a red Speedo and gray suspenders, which yeah. is pretty weird. Yeah, it has kind of this punk, kind of a punk feel, but also kind of like a pro wrestling feel. It feels like the fitting vessel uh, for uh, an, an alien trying to appear as a human. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Krang also has another sort of robot body. You, anybody who had the figures as a kid probably remember this. If you bought Krang as just a, I, I don't know what it costs, like six or seven bucks, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been the little brain guy, little brain uh, dude with his tentacles in this uh, little canopied uh, walker contraption, like basically a walking vehicle for him. Sort of like the ATSTs in Star Wars, the little walkers. Yeah. So on, on one hand, I feel like we can we can apply this uh, this this brain body scenario, the centaur and the rider on a horse to Krang. Like a lot of times, we're trying to think as if we are Krang, as if we are essentially this brain creature, and this body is just the vessel that we're using. But we're not Krang. We're Splinter. <laughs> that's what the T-shirt says. That's that's a good one for the bumper sticker. You're not Krang. You're Splinter. Okay, so I'm going to come back to Krang in a minute, but uh, but but let's talk about just some other examples or possible examples of uh, extended cognition. Okay, are we still on embodied cognition? Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so maybe you count with your fingers. Classic example. Yeah, then in a rather overt example, right? I do this all the time. It's it's frankly a little embarrassing. Um, but it's a good trick, right? It is. Yeah, that's why my brain uh, refuses to learn more complicated uh, methods of uh, of calculating things because the fingers are always there, mm-hmm. even if I have to do it below the table so mm-hmm. that the the gaming group doesn't know that I'm I'm doing it to you know figure out hit points. The, the, they're they're always available and they always help. Now, one thing I notice about counting on my fingers, I assume it's the same for everybody else, is that it's. It's even more helpful when you're trying to manage two cognitive tasks at once, mm-hmm. meaning you're not just counting something. But, for example, you're trying to remember the names of something at the same time that you're counting them. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody asks you, like, um, how many people from your office were at the meeting the other day? And you're trying to remember them, so you go through their faces and names and and list them off. So you're trying to remember who you've already listed and who was there and trying to count them at the same time. So you're juggling multiple different cognitive tasks Mm -hmm. and having the fingers there to store the counting number while you're also trying to call up faces and remember who you've already listed helps you get through the task without your brain catching on fire. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel uh, running a a role-playing game because you'll be in a combat scenario essentially trying to communally tell a story. You're trying to manage... Uh, pieces on a board, so there's a spatial element, and then you're having to continually do math, you know, granted, not particularly complex math at all, but still you're having to uh, constantly add and subtract things to keep up with uh, with hit points and damage. And it's very obvious the role that our fingers and our toes even may have played in the evolution of number and counting systems, right? I mean, it's right there in the types of counting systems we use. Exactly. Base 10 or decimal systems stem from the use of both hands, while base 20 or vigesimal systems are based on the use of fingers and toes. And you can point to to any number of statements about posture and our body positioning and how it relates to innate or learned cognition. Uh, you know, not to get into arguments over the validity of each of these, but, you know, meditation, superhero pose, the kindly brontosaurus. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Explain this. Kindly brontosaurus? Oh, yeah. Kindly brontosaurus. I forget whose, um, whose brainchild uh, this is, but it's the idea that if say, say you're, um, say you're in an airport and okay. you, you know that the, uh, the individual behind the counter, uh, can really help you. But they don't necessarily have to. You're in a, you're in a situation where you really don't want to offend 
but you also know that if you try and charm your way, if you try to intimidate your way, it's just, you're just going to fall flat on your face. Right. So there's this idea that you just kind of, you assume this posture, like imagine you have a long, uh, brontosaurus or I guess a potosaurus would be more, uh, correct. You have this long sauropod neck at any rate. It ultimately doesn't matter. As long as you have the school book idea of a brontosaurus, you kind of assume this posture where you sort of crane your neck out and, uh, and you have your, 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 your arms folded. So you take on this very, um, humble uh mm-hmm. appearance this very meek humble appearance and then you ask for help or you you inquire with the front desk for something that they don't have to give you and <laughs> it supposedly generates uh results so it's like a it's like a mercy generator yeah but i could also see how if you assume this posture you are you know you're you're also adjusting your demeanor as well oh okay so you're saying that it could be a self feedback mechanism that could be aiding in cognition like that uh you could be for example, if you're in a situation and you know you need to maintain a certain state of mind, but it can be cognitively taxing to try to force yourself to maintain that state of mind while you're doing things in that situation, mm-hmm. it may be assuming a certain posture automatically keeps your brain in that state of mind. Right. The superhero posture is probably a better example of this. Uh, this was uh, this was popular in some of the science headlines for a little bit. You know, the idea that you, you roll your shoulders back, you extend your chest, and this will give you a, a sort of a, a burst of confidence. I think I saw people seriously questioning yes, that result. Right? It was, but, uh, but, but it does raise the question. Like yeah. if, I, if I do that and I feel better, is that, is there something innately enabling about taking on that pose or am I just priming myself? Am I sort of getting into superhero mode so that I'm a uh, pumping myself up, making myself feel a little braver by doing this exercise? Yeah, well, I would say in that case, it's possible that you could think of that as extended or embodied cognition, right? Mm-hmm. If it's doing some of the work so your brain doesn't have to continue to do that work. Right. Now, there's also embedded cognition. This is an external environment uh, uh, playing a role. So like the, the idea that the interpretation of this that came to my mind is like the beach makes me creative. Oh, you know? OK. Uh, there's also enacted cognition. Uh, I think an example of this might be yoga makes me relaxed. And as well as, uh, as, as the variant referred to as enclosed cognition, this idea <laughs> that a uniform or your style of dress changes the way you think. Uh, and, and enclosed cognition was coined by cognitive psychologist, uh, Hejo Adam and Adam uh, Galansky from Northwestern University several years back. Uh, I believe there's an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that gets into that. There's some interesting studies about, uh, individuals holding clipboards or wearing, um, uh, you know, doctors, uh, long lab coats and how that, uh, affects the way you think. Now, it's important to be uh, clear about the distinction we're making here between just all the ways things beyond our brain normally affect us versus mm-hmm. the idea of cognition taking place in conjunction with them. So if you, you're working on this idea of embodied cognition, embedded cognition, enacted cognition, in all of these cases, you're either talking about, you know, your body or your environment or activities that you're doing are literally taking the place of information processing or information storage mm-hmm. that would need to happen in the brain otherwise or in the central nervous system in the case of a you know, smaller uh, animal. Yeah. Now, to bring it back to Krang, though, I just want to okay. j- just so everyone can continue to, to, to ponder this question as we continue on with the episode. So you have Krang, just naked Krang on the floor in a pool of his brain juice. You have Krang in the big humanoid android body, and you have Krang in the sort of the simplistic uh, $6 walker. Okay. So 
to what extent are each of these cases altering his cognition? Hmm. Is is Krang on the floor, Krang in the, the, the humanoid body, uh, and Krang in the, the walker, are, are they distinct cognitive situations? Is that android body changing the way that Krang thinks? Uh, I, I mean, I could see that it possibly could be. Like if Krang needs to count on his fingers, but he doesn't have fingers, he just has little, like, reachy tentacles, mm-hmm. uh, that would be difficult to count to numbers much higher than two. Now, if he's working in his big body that has ten fingers... He could maybe count on his fingers. I don't know how much Krang needs to count on his fingers. Well, it raises the point. If he is a, if he is an evolved intelligent creature mm-hmm. that uh, has these two tentacles, then perhaps he has some sort of, I can't remember if he has segments on those tentacles or <laughs> they're suckers, uh-huh. but maybe, but maybe there is some sort of, uh, number system based in his anatomy that he would otherwise use. And so maybe when he is in the android body, He's either handicapped from a uh, a mathematical standpoint, or he is brilliant. I mean, he created like a giant drilling uh, superstructure. Right. So maybe he's smart enough that he can switch over to a, uh, a decimal system. When we talk about extended cognition in biology, one of the hypotheses is going to be that extended cognition is especially useful to animals that have less resources to spend on building big brains. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in Krang's case, he has gone all in, evolutionarily <laughs> speaking, in big brains. Right. Literally all in. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get into the studies, into the science and uh, we will see how some natural world animals stack up against, uh, well, against the, the, the human uh, condition as well as the crane condition. All right, we're back. All right, before we get into looking at extended cognition in biological research, I thought it would be important to look at one classic paper in the history of the idea of extended cognition, and this is The Extended Mind. It was, I think it was published by Oxford University Press by the authors Andy Clark and David Chalmers. Now, it's worth noting this paper does include a reference to Terminator, ha. so Schwarzenegger's making it into classic philosophy papers. Excellent. Uh, but in addition to the other stuff we've talked about, one thing they argue that I think is interesting is that beliefs can be external to the brain. Uh, and they use the example of a man with a memory disorder who carries a notebook full of reminders about everyday facts. So the way they set up this scenario, he's got a notebook, and if he needs to go to a location, he can look up in the notebook how to get there or where it is. And in a normal person's brain who who has the ability to store uh, mental images and navigation ideas, you would say these these ideas are beliefs, right? You believe the post office is located at the corner of this street and that street, mm-hmm. and you, based on that belief, navigate to that location. In what sense is a man with a notebook full of reminders different from somebody who stores that information in long-term memory? Hmm. It's an interesting question. And it also, of course, ties into our our dependence on smartphones these days for their note-taking ability, their information storage ability, and their uh, their navigational abilities. Totally. And, of course, this also makes me think, uh, now, this might not be exactly as applicable because a lot of the people writing on the subject of extended cognition seem very concerned about this idea of coupling or sort of the ready availability Mm. of the the external object to the mind. But anyway, 
it makes me think about the way we outsource many beliefs to the pronouncements of other people, people in whom we vest expertise and authority, right? So, oh, yeah. Uh, could it be said that if I'm trying to figure out what to believe and I just trust that whatever Dr. Expert over here believes is correct, have I extended my cognition to include Dr. Expert's biological cognition? Hmm. Yeah, I would think so to a certain extent. I mean, it gets in to the, the, the similar way that we uh, we have trouble remembering things if we know that our significant other is more likely to remember it or that there are certain things that we we, we only really remember when talking to each other. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that would be a, an interesting thing you mentioned there because you're using the other person's brain as a tool. Mm -hmm. But you could also consider that a form of enacted cognition where it's the process of talking. Yeah. So it's not just that it's stored in their brain, but that by talking to each other, that actor process can call up a memory that otherwise you wouldn't need to store in your mind. Yeah. Like here's an example from from my life. Uh, my wife and I have trouble remembering what year uh, it was that we met, like when, when we started dating. And one of the reasons is it's always easy to look up and see when the first Saw movie came out. Because we know <laughs> that, that, that we met around the same time that the first Saw movie uh, hit theaters. Did uh, y'all go on your first date together to see Saw? Uh, it would, I don't know if it was the first date technically, but early on we did end up going to see oh, the wow. Saw movie. Yeah. So it, it, it's the, the Saw movie is not special to us in any other way other than it's a you know a, just a marker on the timeline but since the marker is there there's like a reluctance in our brains to actually record the date or the month or the year because we can always just pull up our phone go to IMDb and see what year Saw came out so every time you hear like a a chainsaw going through some splattery liquid sounds you think Made for each other. Yeah, and with, with lots of really um, herky-jerky editing thrown mm -hmm. in there. And, uh, yeah. I mean, for a while, there was a Saw movie every year. Like, most people don't appreciate how, how helpful that was. Uh, <laughs> but we would, sit, we would see, oh, it's Saw 5 or whatever. Oh, all the miles dating anniversary. Yeah. Right. Uh, so here's another way of following up on this. Uh, the idea of, like, maybe talking to your significant other that act could generate information that offsets cognitive deficits. Mm -hmm. Could language itself have evolved to provide an extension of our cognitive resources? Now, go with me for a second. We generally assume language is for the purpose of communication, right? When you ask people what language is for, it's so we can share ideas between one another. Right. That's obviously a big feature of it. I mean, I that's what I generally think of it for. But Think about it this way. Isn't it also sometimes the case that you can think more clearly about something once you put it into words? So what if words themselves act like a calculator for causal reasoning? Mm -hmm. They're allowing cloudy, nonverbal thoughts to be organized into something lucid. And in that way, they are actually a way of extending your mind. They're an external tool that sort of stores and organizes information that would be harder to manage internally without those words. Oh, yeah. Like one thing that comes to mind, to, you know, I have to think like what's what's a process that I regularly engage in uh, writing. So mm -hmm. if you think of something like, say, say a lead paragraph or a, or yeah, yeah, let's go with lead paragraph or even a. The, the first chapter of a longer work, the first page of a short story. Mm -hmm. Like that's a good catch all just referring to the segment of the thing you were, you, you were creating. 
But there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that that intro paragraph has to accomplish. There's like a whole checklist of things you want to, you, you want to achieve in doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to just sort of wrap it all up in a, in a basket and then consider that, uh, in relation to the rest of the piece. Right. Uh, but I mean, I'd say at an even simpler level, I don't know if this is often true for you, but it's very often true for me. I don't know what I really think about something until I write about it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely I definitely feel that way. Yeah, like writing writing about something is uh, I mean, this is how I approach the the podcast many times. I, I have to write out my thoughts and that's where it begins to uh, solidify a bit. Uh, so that I can then tear it apart to a certain extent when I try and uh, speak it. Yeah, so it's the words themselves and the sentences as abstract symbols and and bits of encoding and the process of writing, both mm-hmm. of those things that help you clear up cognitive cloudiness. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree 100%. One more thing I think is interesting that uh, Clark and Chalmers bring up before we go into extended cognition in animals They say, you know, if we discover that people use their environments for cognition, that cognition isn't just in the brain, but that you're literally thinking with the things around you, does that mean that interfering with somebody's environment is the same as interfering with themselves as a person? Yeah, I would I would think so. You know, I mean, when it when you think of, say, your working space. The, the like the careful positioning of the things around you. Oh yeah, you know? like if somebody moves the things around on your desk, mm-hmm. think how violated that makes you feel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it and it holds true whether you're talking about a messy desk or a, you know a meticulously clean desk. Mm-hmm. Things go in a certain place, and if they're moved, then that throws you off. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we all have particulars. Like I work with the window open, or I work with the window closed. I need this amount of sunlight. Uh, in my work environment, or like if I go to yoga class, I need my my yoga um, equipment in a certain spot. My water goes here. My uh, <laughs> yoga blocks go here. And right. if they're out of position, that's going to it's going to put me out of position cognitively to a certain extent. Mm. All right, Robert. Well, are you ready to go to the animal kingdom? Let's do it. Let's let's pull in the animals. Well, now, actually, of course, we are members of the animal kingdom, yes. but it is helpful <laughs> when talking about cognition, when trying to understand what it really is, to look at animals other than humans so you can get a more objective point of view. Yeah, and you can peel off a lot of the human complexity of uh, well, most of the human complexity of culture and whatnot that we have on top. So it's kind of like getting down to more of the bedrock ideas. Yeah. So let's look at animals and try to apply this same principle. Some animals have brains yet nevertheless use other parts of their body or things outside their body, apparently to perform cognition. That's right. Uh, I mean, like I say, we tend to fall back on our rider horse, crane in a can view of cognition because that's more compatible with how we've come to view the biomechanical human. Mm-hmm. But this vision doesn't work as well with many animal models, particularly smaller organisms that essentially offload aspects of their cognition to other parts of their neural system. Or outside their neural system entirely. Yeah, one example I remember talking about in past episodes is cockroaches. Mm -hmm. Where, so, you know, cockroaches have a central nervous system, but they've also got things throughout their bodies that you almost want to call separate little brains in their legs and body parts. But they're not really brains. They're neural tissue that appears to do some kind of independent information processing. Yeah, like another example that comes up is uh, crickets that hear through quote-unquote ears on their knees. Mm. Uh, one example that I always love is uh, 
the male praying mantis who continues to mate after his mate has decapitated him. <laughs> so in these cases, copulatory movements in uh, mantids are controlled by masses of nerve tissue in the abdomen rather than the brain. So what what that makes you want to say is like, oh, so they've got a second brain in their abdomen. Right. And that's what some of the science headlines, uh, I remember, they, they, they went with that. They're like, the, the male praying mantis has a brain and it's uh, in his genitals. But the truth is more interesting than that. Yeah, because it's not the brain. It's, it's not a second brain. Uh, it's just nerve tissues beyond the brain. And in fact, with the with the, the praying mantis, in many cases, the, like the the head is gone, the head is eaten away, mm-hmm. and it's going to copulate more ferociously. It's it, it, in a sense the um, it, it's like the dead man switch or the dead mantis switch has been hit on mating. Now you might think like, well, I mean, come on, how much cognitive capacity is really involved in mating? Like, do you really need to do that much information processing to mate? Uh, I, I don't know what mantis mating exactly looks like. I'm not imagining something incredibly complex. <laughs> well, they're, they're videos. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, videos you can look up at work or. Yeah. They're, well, there, it depends where your, uh, your employers fall on, uh, and mantoid, uh, intercourse. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, I think we're, we have a, we have a, a relaxed policy on it here. If I'm remembering our, 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 uh, our handbook correctly. Uh, but of course, it goes way beyond just activities like mating. You you can say that uh, cognition in many ways extends to all parts of the body and even much more complex animals. Yeah, Let's take uh, take oct- octopi, octopuses, octopodes. For I think example. I, I think I like octopodes. I know yeah. we've debated this in the past. What's the plural of octopus? Mm-hmm. I'm going with octopodes, not octopuses. Despite the uh, the James Bond film, maybe that's the British. Uh, that is a metric thing, maybe. That is the plural for talking about multiple copies of the movie Octopussy. Ah, there so you go. If okay. you've got like 14 Blu-rays of Octopussy on your, uh, on your kitchen counter for some reason, it's, it's like, hey, can you move the Octopussies out of the way? I need to chop some celery. Ah, there we go. So octopuses are smart critters, though. They, they have, they have a rather different brain from us, but they've been observed to, to pass modified tests of consciousness even. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I, I make it a point not to eat octopi. Uh, they certainly don't follow the big brain model of cognition, however, uh, with their central brain composing only a small part of a greater nervous system. So by, by most estimates, two-thirds of their roughly 500 million neurons are located in their arms. Wow. That makes sense, right? I mean, octopi are... You see them moving around. They're mostly a creature of arms. It's it's that's their whole thing. That's how they navigate their world. That's how they they uh, they capture their prey. Uh, It's in the title of the organism. So on our model of cognition, that would seem to make us think that what the octopus must have in its brain is a sort of picture of the environment around it in its brain, Mm -hmm. mental representation of its environment, and then also some sort of proprioceptive sense of where all of its arms are in relation to the features of that environment, right? Like it's got a room in its mind that's the ocean floor around it, and it knows where all of its limbs are in that room and the mental representation. Is that what's going on? Well, according to Macquarie University's Ken Ching, the octopus uh, does not seem to require centralized mental image, or uh, I'm assuming this is in line with the idea of body schema. Right. It doesn't need the centralized mental image of what its body is doing in order to do it. 
the arms, it would seem, to, to put it uh, you know loosely, know how to move. So the arms do their own thinking in a way. Yeah. So a sucker on a tentacle touches, say, a piece of crab meat. Yum. It sends a wave of impulses up the arm. Now, by most you know examples, you would expect that uh, you know our sort of grade school understanding of, of nerve uh, impulses. A, a human touches something, the impulses travel up the arm through the nervous system to the brain, right? To the brain, yeah. Yeah. Well, what happens here is uh seems to be a little different. The base of the arm sends another impulse down the arm. The two signals meet, and an elbow or bend forms. It's not a you know a real elbow, but a bend essentially forms to allow the grasp crab morsel to then reach the mouth of the octopus. Now that is interesting. Now th- this is one of the facts that was mentioned in that Atlantic article yes. uh, I mentioned at the top of the episode. That but th- this was very interesting to me. So it knows how to bring a piece of food up to its beak by bisecting the distance between the place where it has grasped the food and the base of the arm up at the up at the head mm-hmm. uh, by just calculating that within the arm itself. Yeah, it essentially has a cheat built into its its neural system so that it doesn't have to make those computations with the brain. That's my read on it anyway. Brilliant. It, it's also I, I can't help but but sort of go wild with this and, th- and think, all right, well, we're talking about uh, about uh, how external things change cognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting to think about in terms of other things we've we've observed or, in one case, hypothesized um, octopuses uh, doing. Uh, For instance, consider the the coconut octopus or veined octopus that uses coconuts or seashells for shelter, essentially, you know, basic tool use. To what extent is that altering its cognition? Well, that's a good question, and we might be able to apply a criterion from the next study we look at uh, to to judge that. This criterion that's going to come up in a minute is the idea of uh, mutual manipulability. Isn't that a horrible word, manipulability? <laughs> I practiced saying it before we got going here. Uh, but it's the idea that really if something external is part of your cognitive system, then your brain should be able to manipulate it and it should be able to manipulate your brain in return. So there's a manipulation feedback between the two. Okay. Now, I wonder if that would apply to things like uh, like these coconut fragments or seashells that would be used by the octopus. Well, one more advanced but also controversial idea would be uh, to how would this play into the Kraken hypothesis of uh, paleontologist uh, Mark McMiniman, uh, of uh, Mount uh, Holyoke College in Massachusetts. Are you familiar with this? No, I hadn't. I mean, not until you were you, you put this in here. So tell me about it, Robert. Okay, so there hasn't been any recent movement on this. Uh, my understanding is that uh, is is that he's still working on this and hopes to publish more about it. Okay, but it was it was rather controversial when it came out. Some criticized this as being far fetched, but he's not a quack by any by any extent. He's a, he's an established uh, uh, paleontologist here. His argument is that you have uh, what we have are fossil remains of a prehistoric cephalopod uh, beak, and we have a curious arrangement of dead uh, ichthyosauruses. Ichthyosaurus, of course, is the 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 kind of weird looking dolphin reptile that we discussed in a previous episode, I believe. Okay, uh, so you're, fossil episode. You're saying like they're discovered together. You've got right. a place where there's a fossil, and there's a, a strange arrangement of of dead ichthyosaur fossils, mm-hmm. and in the middle of it, you've got this beak. Right. And as we discussed in our, our fossil episode, fossil action scenes, uh, paleontologists have to interpret these findings and try and figure out in, in what cases you're just looking at a, a chance coupling of, uh, of remains 
and in which cases you're dealing with fossil evidence of an interaction. In this case, in this uh, Triassic uh, Kraken uh, hypothesis, the idea is that the bones are arranged in an unnatural pattern to resemble the pattern of uh, of tentacle sucker discs on the uh, the cephalopod itself. Whoa! Yeah. So hold on. This hypothesis is that this ancient cephalopod made art. Essentially, yeah, that it's an ancient self-portrait and a, gl- and a glimpse into a 200 million year old inhuman uh, and arguably creative mind. Well, I love that, but I can definitely see why people were very skeptical of this yes, idea. Yeah. So don't don't take this one to the bank. But I, I really do hope that uh, that Mark uh, McMiniman puts out another paper on this and uh, offers some more some more proof and some more thoughts, even if it doesn't turn out to, to have, uh, you know, any uh, provable validity to it. I still love the idea. Oh, yeah. Sort of an octoponymous Bosch. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, I think we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get into spiders and their cognitive webs. All right, we're back. Okay, so I want to finish by looking at this one really interesting paper that was one of the centerpieces of uh, of the article I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So I, I went and looked up this paper in Animal Cognition by uh, Hilton Yapyasu and Kevin in Lalonde. And the paper is called Extended Spider Cognition in the Journal of Animal Cognition, published in 2017. So this is new stuff. And this paper was very interesting. So it, it starts with the idea of extended cognition. You've got these two different models of cognition. Cognition as a process within the central nervous system and then cognition extending out into other parts of the body or even other features of the environment. And the question is, which of these ideas is a better system for understanding cognition in biology, uh, which is better for cognitive biologists to use in their research. And to avoid controversy with basic terms, the authors of the study accept a common definition of cognition, which is the acquisition, processing, storage, and use of information. Now, while there are these different models of cognition beyond the central nervous system, the authors don't really commit to any one of them in particular. So they're, they're not going down the enacted cognition or embodied cognition path. They're just saying anything that takes place beyond the central nervous system will be considered extended cognition. Um, so one of the ways to get out of the realm of philosophy is to just test the extended cognition hypothesis in animals. So this is what this study sets out to do, and they want to test it in spiders. Now, in thinking about where extended cognition could come from in biology, the authors cite a cybernetics principle known as Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety. And this states that if a system is going to be stable, quote, the number of states of the control mechanism of a system must be greater than or equal to the number of states in the system being controlled. Now, that's really abstract language, but it actually is pretty simple. In biology, this just means that if an organism like an animal is going to be successful in a variable environment, it needs variable behavior. It needs to itself be able to meet all of the different circumstances that could come up in its natural environment. Complex threat environments demand complex behaviors, right? Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of, of, of some of the, the more uh, cognitively advanced uh, species you look at. I'm instantly thinking of birds. 
uh, for instance, the New Caledonian Crow, oh, having yeah. to employ various strategies to uh, to 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 uh, to earn its food. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you see complex cognition in the bird that has fairly complex challenges to face in the wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, it's taken as a given that neural complexity usually underlies behavioral complexity, right? If you see an organism doing a wide variety of different things instead of the same few things over and over again, it's usually a sign of cognitive power. Yeah, like, I mean, I think of a tiger, for instance, in comparison to a New Caledonian crow. Yeah. New Caledonian crow, again, is having to employ various strategies to to earn that meal. The tiger has basically one strategy and it's really good at that one strategy but it doesn't diversify it is not a generalist well i wouldn't i don't know i wouldn't undersell the cognitive capabilities of a tiger i mean mm-hmm. i think compared to like a, a primate a tiger is probably pretty low on the cognitive scale but compared to a lot of organisms especially a lot of uh, herbivorous organisms it's probably pretty high i mean one thing you do generally see and this comes up in the paper is that predators tend to be higher in cognitive capabilities than their prey. Oh, yes. I mean, I definitely would put a tiger above, uh, you know, a cow. I mean, yeah. clearly it was, uh, you know, framed by an immortal hand or eye. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking that away from it. Right. If it must roam the forest of the night, it, yeah. it's got to have some tricks up its sleeve. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you're right that it might have a more specially adapted niche than some other animals that have to be incredibly diverse generalists. Yes. Um, but anyway, in, with this in mind, it should be clear that organisms inhabiting more challenging and unstable environments, and one challenge they give is unpredictable fluctuations in resources, those types of organisms need to require more powerful brains or central nervous systems to deal with those challenges. So uh, one example of a hypothesis Along these lines is the social brain hypothesis. Now, Robert, I know you've encountered this before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, um, at the World Science Festival that I just came back from, there was a there was an entire panel discussion on uh, uh, about the social synapse, about the the social brain, and and how uh, we think it evolved, especially in, uh, in terms of uh, the creation of tools and then communication over the over the creation of tools. Oh, cool! Is that one of the ones they've put online? Uh, yeah, I believe that one is available online. Oh. Yeah. I'd like to watch that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll re- revisit the topic for a future episode. Well, anyway, just to give you the quick gist here, living in groups is a complex and challenging environment, putting great demands on your cognition. You've got to remember who everybody around you is, what their personalities are like, what their status is relative to you and to each other. This is this is really demanding. Mm-hmm. And, they and all- I mean, and also as far as status goes, You've got to figure out how you can potentially move up. Yes. Uh, one of the things that came up in the social synapse talk is you have examples of primates. Uh, I can't believe I can't remember offhand if we're talking chimpanzees or macaques, where you'll have uh, a female that's low in the totem pole, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. But then she has uh, a child. And in the social environment, the young primate is uh, a means for her to rise up because all the other uh, animals want to touch it. They want to interact with it. You mm. know, the baby is valued uh, by by the group, and this enabled this particular individual in the study to rise up to, uh, to to near the very top of the social order. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the fact that there is always this variability in uh, social hierarchy in these animals with big social groups means that that's even another – like there there's not just uh, benefits, but there are threats too. If mm-hmm. somebody else can move up, you can be moved down the hierarchy. Yeah. So you've got to constantly maintain all these social relationships, and this is hard work for a brain. Yeah, even if you don't live in a vicious <laughs> working environment uh, – uh, you, you, your mind is still sort of calculating, all right, where am I? What's the status quo? So the authors state that this has been somewhat borne out in research into uh, primate brains. For example, macaques living in groups tend to have increases in gray matter in uh, mid-superior temporal sulcus and in rostral prefrontal cortex. Uh, but of course, on the other hand, if extended cognition is true, we should be able to find evidence of biological systems where the size and energy consumption of the central nervous system does not directly track with the cognitive power of the organism. If you can think with things outside your body, you should be able to find evidence of organisms meeting the information processing requirements of their environments or their survival niche without necessarily having the gray matter to do so, right? So, but I guess this brings you to the question of, like, why wouldn't you just invest in a bigger brain? If you need more cognitive processing done, mm-hmm. why don't you just make a bigger brain that gets more work done? Well, this isn't easy either. I mean, most animals live on the edge of survival as far as uh, as far as energy resources go. And a central nervous system that does lots of computation on its own needs lots of processing power, which means spending energy building that neural tissue and keeping it active and maintained. Yeah, I mean, there's an, an economy to maintain here. We, we see time and time again in, in evolution that the, the, the antlers are only going to be as big as they need to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> otherwise, that, that, that lineage is going to perish and, and small antlers are going to be the, 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 the adaptation that survives. Yeah. And so we can forget about this because I don't know, as comfortable humans, like you, you might not be constantly concerned about survival and starvation, but mm-hmm. most animals are living at the edge of starvation. It's right. just right on the horizon for them. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that came up in that uh, World Science Festival uh, panel discussion was uh, just basic tools. You see other hominid species where they created a basic tool, you know, like a stone uh, implement for chipping away at things and, and, and processing meat. And that tool did not change. It didn't it, they didn't evolve it beyond that point. Uh, and it re- you know, remained the same for a thousand years or more. Uh, that's rather different than the, from the ascension of tool use we see for the most part in, in human history. Right. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, evolution, is, I, I hate to anthropomorphize it, but evolution is, uh, is, is perfectly happy to remain just at that threshold of starvation, like yeah. you say. As long as it works. Yeah. So the more cognition is limited to the workings of a central nervous system, the more energy is required to invest in that central nervous system. Thus, Extended cognition really could be viewed as an energy-efficient shortcut for giving an organism more information processing power with less energy investment, less resources going in. Also, this is interesting, the authors point that out, central cognition relies very much on powers of perception. Cognition, if you're going to yield accurate results, is informationally greedy, right? Think about mm-hmm. the resolution of our eyes and our hearing acuity and how much of an organism's resources go into sampling the outside world to make sure it's getting a good internal representation of its surroundings. Yeah. So to plan for a future action, you need a representational model of the world in your head. 
And if your plan is to mean anything, that model needs to be accurate, which means you need to take pictures of the world around you that are information rich. And if you offload some of that same cognition into the environment, you might not have to do as much mental representation. You might not require as much perceptual information. So that brings us to what type of animals are going to be the most favored for extended cognition. Obviously, all kinds of animals might use it to some extent, but which ones are going to really go hard in on extended cognition if this is a fact of biology? The authors hypothesize that the evolution of extended cognition should be especially favored among small generalist predators. Now, why is that? Well, first you've got the small creatures. There's there's general what's known as allometry between brain size and body size, and that means they track one another. Mm -hmm. Um, The bigger your body, the bigger your brain. And one takeaway from this is that if you want a more powerful brain, it's much easier if you're a larger animal. Especially tiny animals are going to have real difficulty recruiting sufficient information processing power within the small collections of central nervous tissue that their tiny bodies will support. The smaller you are, the harder it is to uh, energetically justify complex cognition within your economy of survival. Yeah, because as we said, cognition is already pricey. Right. Uh, so, so if you're small, you might be really looking for a way to offload some of that cognitive uh, uh, capacity into your environment, into other parts of your body, or in any of these extended areas. Now, the next thing is predators. Why would predators especially need this? Well, predators generally need more information and processing power than other organisms. Why it's that they, quote, tend to be large and mobile so as to track diverse, changeable and spatially distinct prey distributions and thus require the information processing capability to detect and respond to changes in these distributions. And this is supported by observing that in mammals, predators tend to have larger brains. You can also see this even in some fishes like teleost fishes. Fish higher up the food chain have bigger brains. You need them because of the work you've got to do to survive. So you've got small, you've got predators. The other thing was general predators. Generalists are animals that specialize in more than one particular environmental niche. They they deal with more variability. Uh, the more general an animal's foraging landscape, the more variability it needs to deal with and thus the more processing power it needs. And uh, while this is not a pure predator by any means, I always think of the raccoon. Like the raccoon is a, is a pretty intelligent little critter mm-hmm. because because it is a, it is such a generalist. It is uh, ranging, uh, you know, uh, pretty far and wide within its uh, its environmental uh, ranging ground to uh, to acquire its food. Yeah. And you can really see raccoons getting pretty crafty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With your garbage. I mean, yeah, even helping each other at times. Uh, I've, 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 I haven't read a study about this, but I've heard accounts of of raccoons say, standing upon uh uh, each other's shoulders to achieve some sort of a goal, such as uh, drinking the nectar from a hummingbird feeder. Or to get the garbage can lid off. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this leads them to their main hypothesis in the subject of uh, of the study portion of their literature review. So the authors say, quote, these considerations lead us to expect, other things being equal, that predators of a relatively small size with generalist habits 
are prime candidates for extended cognition because they should be under particularly strong selection to reduce their relative brain size but maintain their behavioral richness. And one means by which this could be achieved is through offloading brain processing to the body or the environment. So who's a good candidate for meeting this? Spiders. Ah, yes, because spiders have been uh, at it for a long time. They have been, uh, they're, they're some pretty old predators, pretty successful predators found on every continent except Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, they've been on Earth for some 400 million years. And uh, while the number keeps going up, I believe the most recent species count was in excess of 45,000 spider species. Now, we've covered aspects of spider anatomy and behavior on the show uh, over the years. Uh, what was see, the most recent one? We we did one on uh, Well, we silk. did what it would be like to get yes. eaten by a giant spider. That's right. We did that last <laughs> October for our Halloween season uh, because with the giant spider movies, they always cut away right before right. the spider gets to the part where it eats you. And we were like, well, what would that look like? <laughs> Does it stick the fangs in and drain your blood like a vampire? And the answer, spoiler alert, no, they mostly like drool all over you and inject you with uh, with dissolving enzymes and turn you into mush and then they <laughs> turn you into bolus. And it, well, just go listen to the episode. Yeah. Now, I think everyone knows what a spider is. The basics are eight legs, venom and fangs, spinnerets that produce highly specialized strands of silk. Some spiders use these to hunt or maneuver in their environments, but a great many of them build traps, webs. And uh, there are several types of webs. You have uh, triangle webs, funnel webs, mesh webs, cobwebs, sheet webs, and of course, uh, traditional orb webs. Some 3,000 uh, plus species of orb spiders exist. And the orb part, it's easy to kind of get tripped up on this and imagine a three-dimensional orb, but right. basically we're talking about a circular web, the classic spider web, the sort of thing that you see in a giant spider movie, a haunted house, or a burlesque show. Uh, it's the, the round spider web. And these are incredible structures engineered down to minute weaving in each specialized strand. I always stress that a spider webbing is not a silly string scenario. <laughs> they are they're true weavers. They're manipulating the substance of the silk strands and the manner by which they're woven together. And this is just into the, the line they're using because they're then using that spider silk uh, line, which is strong and flexible. Uh, some varieties are five times as strong as an equal mass of steel and twice as strong as an equal mass of Kevlar. They're using that then to create this web structure. Mm -hmm. And the web structure itself is far more than just a sticky trap because right. we, we see that in the movies, the, the monster movies. The, 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 the damsel is caught in the, uh, against the web usually. Like generally it just looks like she's leaning against some rope yeah. web and then the big spider puppet comes. Right. But, it's it's far more than that. For starters, it's a killing room. It's a killing floor. It's the home turf uh, for the predator, uh, and it provides the predator with a strong advantage over appropriately sized prey that tumble into the web. And it's also a communication array. You land on the webbing, and the spider knows. Now, the, this is going to be important. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. The, you land on that web, or you fall into that web. The spider knows. The spider feels. And it's no great leap to say that the orb spider web is a vital extension of the creature that built it and occupies it, waiting for the signals of the snared prey. Right. So the prediction that these authors give in their paper is that because spiders have the cognitive needs of generalist predators, but the neural limitations of tiny organisms, 
The authors think that spiders should show signs of evolution favoring extended cognition if such a thing is possible. And the special feature of spider biology they're going to look to is those webs, that amazing silk, those threads. So we definitely used to think of spiders as purely instinct-driven stimulus-response machines with no real cognitive capacity, but that isn't the case anymore. Uh, Spider research has yielded a lot of interesting signs of cognition, allowing them to learn new things. Uh, So some examples given by the authors are that, for example, spiders appear to plan routes of movement in advance. Like there are these cannibal jumping spiders that prey on orb weavers and uh, when they prey on orb weavers, they'll watch them from a distance first, then plan a route of approach that loses sight of the prey animal on route, then drops down from above to attack the orb weaver at the hub of its web. There are signs that they actually have the capability to display numerosity, like they can understand some number distinctions. Hmm. Uh, that they learn conditional tactics of aggressive mimicry. And one example of this would be the these cannibalistic jumping spiders again. They prey on orb weavers, uh, and what they will do is they'll go up to the edge of the web and generate false vibratory signals to manipulate the behavior of their prey. So they learn what signals to use for a particular spider by trial and error to get the spider to come out to a place where it can be attacked. Huh. There's at least one variety of, uh, of I believe it's an orb spider, that will essentially build a decoy of itself in the web. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard mm-hmm. of that. But the authors also say that they can generally, like, they can unlearn imprinted associations and they can generally display adaptability to changing conditions. So they're not mere machines re- repeating a program. No, spiders appear to have some real cognitive capacity that they can, that they can plan, that they can essentially think. Now, obviously, their thinking is not going to be exactly the same kind of thinking that you would identify with like a, a mammal, like a primate. But they are no spider philosophers. No, they are doing some kind of complex information processing. Now, the experimental method that these researchers apply in their paper is that this is a literature review. So they're not doing direct new research uh, or experiments in this. They're reviewing a lot of the existing spider research. And what they're trying to look for to see if something can count as cognition is something I mentioned earlier, the mutual manipulability criterion. They explain this by saying, quote, two entities that can reciprocally alter the state of each other pertain to one in the same system. Does that make sense? So if, if the external object and the spider's brain can both change each other reciprocally, mm-hmm. then you might consider this a mutually manipulable system. Okay. So a couple of cases they look at in the paper. One is how attention is managed by web threads. So, Robert, imagine you are a web-spinning spider. Gotcha. You want information about your environment. Mm -hmm. Is there something walking on my web? Is it something I could eat or something that could eat me? But you've got these neural limitations. You've got a tiny, tiny brain. So how do you selectively apply your limited cognitive resources to get the best info about what's going on around you? Well, what if you use your web itself? That's right. I mean, I'm depending on the web for the, the, the sensations anyway. Yeah, but you're not just statically using the web. Mm-hmm. So it would be one thing if you felt vibrations in the web 
And that told you something about your environment. That would be just kind of like, you know, uh, seeing the light reflecting off of something coming towards you. That'd just be sensing something from your environment. But the spiders don't just have their brains manipulated by info from the web. They manipulate the web in return to to fine tune their attentional systems. So web building spiders, for example, have been shown to use web tension as an attentional mechanism. And the same way we would focus our eyes on a particular site if we wanted to pay attention to it, they can pull certain web threads tight to focus vibrational attention on those areas of their webs. Oh, okay. I mean, very very much like tightening the strings on a guitar. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and so it, it works. When you pull the threads tight, you increase the resolution of the information that you mm-hmm. get through them. It's like focusing with a telescope on something. And when researchers artificially tense one part of a web, spiders are more attentive to that region of the web. And hungrier spiders will adapt. For example, normally you might have a fruit fly land in a spider web and the spider doesn't even care because there's so little nutrition in it. Why does it even bother? It's so tiny. Right. And it's not going to it's not going to damage the web. Right. But if a spider is very hungry, if it's on the verge of starvation, it will pull the threads of its web tighter to sense higher resolution information, including smaller insects landing on it like fruit flies. So if it's starving, a fruit fly lands on the web. It's got the threads pulled tight so it can sense tiny stuff like fruit flies and it'll go out and eat that meager meal because it's starving. Huh. Now, when experimenters selectively place prey on horizontal threads in a web, spiders learn to favor horizontal tension. That's an interesting thing, too. So it looks like you're seeing this reciprocal causation here, mutual manipulability. The web changes the spider's brain, but the spider's brain also changes how it uses the web. It can pull the threads taut or it can relax them and it can adapt to the needs of the spider at the general time it's occupying the web. But there, there's another interesting thing about what they do with webs. Uh, they're web building algorithms. So spiders appear to use the structures of their own webs to offload some of the cognitive requirements of web building. Think about how you build a house. When you build a house, you have to use a lot of cognition. You've got to measure the space available to you. You've got to plan out the size of walls and rooms. You've got to keep everything within your budget and make sure all the math works out. Make sure you've got all the resources. Spiders build complex structures like webs with tiny brains. How do they do it? The answer is algorithmically, using the web itself to store information about the building process. So instead of constantly having to keep all aspects of web construction and working memory, they can start building a web and work from simple algorithmic rules based on their sensory apprehension of the web characteristics that already exist. So web construction is also judged by the researchers to be mutually manipulable. Changes in the web during construction, for example, if you go in while a spider's building a web and clip certain threads, mm-hmm. this changed the behavior of the spider. This changes the spider's thought processes about how it's building because it affects this algorithm. But changes to the behavior of the spider, changes to the spider's brain, rather, also change the construction process. Robert, I bet you've seen this classic example of what happens when you give spiders drugs and try yes. to get them to build webs. Mm-hmm. So you give a spider LSD or caffeine. I think the caffeine web was like the worst web. 
uh, but all these various drugs, and it changes their algorithm for how they build the web. But also this occurs in their natural habitats. Spiders build different kinds of webs based on changing environmental needs. Well, the example that comes to mind here is, of, uh, of course, when we've taken spiders into space yeah. and, and observed their uh, attempts to, to build webs there. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Here's one more example th- from the paper that I thought was really interesting. What about spatial memory substitution? So we exist in a world that's got three spatial dimensions, and it can be rough trying to build models of that world and represent it correctly. Your spatial memory is probably not as good as you think it is. And if you want to be shocked, here's an experiment. Draw a picture of a room that you go in frequently, indicating where you think all the objects in the room are and how far apart from each other they are. Now, go check your drawing against reality. I think you're probably <laughs> going to be surprised how much you get wrong. Interesting. That would be an interesting exercise. I'm very tempted to go with, like, the smallest room in my house, like yeah. a like a secondary bathroom, uh, to sort of limit the, the scope of the exercise. But even then, I, yeah, I'm betting I'm going to get my measurements wrong. I mean, you'll probably get the general gist of the room, right? Mm-hmm. You'll know the main things in it, basically what shape it is. But uh, where exactly the corners are positioned in relation to each other, oh, where yeah. exactly the pieces of furniture, how far apart they are, I think you're going to get stuff like that wrong. But spiders can use silk dragline to reduce a 3D spatial environment to a 1D spatial environment. So that, that might sound kind of weird, but think about it like this. You're an orb-weaving spider. And you get threatened in your web. Maybe some kid comes along and says, oh, cool, spider, I want to squish it. It can drop out of the web and hide among leaves, say, but it leaves a trail of dragline silk when it goes, which it can later follow back to the web. And this totally shortcuts the cognition that would be devoted to 3D modeling of the world for spatial navigation. If you just have to follow the dragline silk back to the web, you have reduced navigation to a one-dimensional activity, totally short-circuiting all that need for cognitive navigation. Now, there are other there are plenty of things that don't fit the criteria of uh, mutual manipulability, so they probably wouldn't be considered extended cognition. One thing would be something they looked at called matched filters. This is basically the, it's sensory filters. They provide adaptive information, but the spider must simply accept the information they provide. The filters themselves can't be manipulated for cognitive feedback. So uh, the conclusion they come to is that web threads and structures are part of a spider's information processing system and that spiders use their webs to think. The cognition of a spider isn't just in the spider's central nervous system, but it's thinking partially with its central nervous system and partially with its web. Hmm, yeah, I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Again, when you when you think of the web as not just this thing it builds, but this thing that it inhabits, this this in this artificial environment that it has uh, evolved to create that is that is tailored to its needs that it manipulates in order to help snare its prey. Yeah, resource wise, it's a two for one deal. You would need the web anyway to kill and eat. Mm-hmm. So why not use it for cognition? Yeah, and and as we we've we've shown, the I mean, evolution uh, is an economist. It has to. Uh, it's it's not going to spend any more uh, any any more uh, cash on the project than it has to. Therefore, make use of the web. It's sitting there. Let's let's uh, let, let's use it to uh, enhance our cognition. In fact, the authors of the paper observe something about this. They say, quote, it may be no coincidence that some of the most cognitively sophisticated invertebrates and they give the example of social bees 
wasps, and ants, are renowned for their niche construction, e.g. nest building. Thus, we have a double prediction that miniaturization will select for extended cognition and that niche construction will facilitate the process of outsourcing information processing. Hmm. So animals like this, they tend to build niches, but these niches in turn, the, the animals find a way to use them to offload some cognitive processing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm instantly thinking about, uh, about bees and wasps and, uh, termites, other social insects and trying to, yeah, to, to work out how they would be, uh, manipulating this as well. I don't know. Listen, maybe we'll come back to it in the future. Yeah. We got anything else, Robert? I don't know. I guess I mean, we can come back to Krang and say, well, what, <laughs> what does this tell us about Krang? Uh, I don't know. Would you consider Krang's human suit, not mm-hmm. human suit, it's android suit, the guy with the suspenders? Yeah. Would you consider that his relationship with Krang mutually manipulable? I I'm, I tend to. I mean, I don't I'm, I don't have a lot of like hard geek knowledge about about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't know to what extent this has been fleshed out within the franchise over the years. But uh, but yeah, I mean, he's he's in this this suit. He's in he's fighting Ninja Turtles with it. Like he's grappling turtles. He's climbing on stuff. He's blasting things. Like it seems to be a a vital way in which, especially in the cartoon series, is a vital way in which he interacts with the world, and that's a true interaction with the with with the with, with it going both ways. Yeah, he punches them, they punch him back. Is a krang without a body really a krang? I guess it's a different type of krang. Well, it, like it kind of comes back to uh to, to its uh how it's processing numbers. Does it <laughs> process numbers differently? With, a, with an android um, hand uh, in front of it mm-hmm. uh, versus just its two tentacles. Yeah, it's a good mm-hmm. question. Yeah. And then if, in terms of the, the simple walker device, that that makes me think about humans and automobiles. Uh, we had a, an, an off-mic discussion on this earlier. To what extent could you possibly make an argument uh, for some sort of extended cognition occurring uh, for the driver of a modern automobile? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh I, I don't know. I mean, what, once you start building in other things like a GPS device, that's obviously something that you're offloading some cognitive capacity to. Mm-hmm. But there's probably genuinely a question about to what extent you mutually manipulate the GPS device in return. Right. I don't know. That's a case where the answer might be maybe you need to think more about it. Hmm. That would be something to potentially come back and explore in the future. Yeah. Uh, Cause it does get into this. This basically it comes down to the relationship we have with our smartphones yeah. and how that is changing us from a cognitive perspective. Yeah, we're totally adapting. We're learning that we don't need to remember stuff anymore. We can look it up. Mm-hmm. Man. Brave new world. All right. So there you have it. Uh, Krang, spiders, octopuses, smartphones. Uh, you can definitely check out the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. I'll try to remember to include a link to that uh, Atlantic paper on there so that you can uh, you can read it if you wish. And, uh, hey, that's also where you'll find all the other podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us, as always, at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
Thank you.